Welcome to NextCast, where we take you on a thrilling journey into the heart of innovation, urban development, and the future of our bustling cities. I'm your host, Emilia, CEO of SwissNext in San Francisco, and this is the Metropolis season. Good morning, everyone, and good morning, Sarah. Welcome to our Next Cat podcast, the Metropolis edition. And today we are with Sarah Skaversky. She's the research director at IFTF Institute for the Future. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a nice day in San Francisco. Beautiful uh, sunrise. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, let me start with my first question. Institute for the Future. That sounds very promising, uh, <laughs> even when you're based in San Francisco and in the Bay Area. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? What is the Institute for the Future? What can we expect yeah. from this podcast? Absolutely. Uh And yeah, you can't get a name like that these days. Uh, we've actually been around since 1968. Uh, so it's an organization that we're a nonprofit organization, really public interest based, wanting to help people think more strategically and more imaginatively about the longer term future. We really are aiming to combat this idea of short termism. So often we're just looking at what's right in front of us assuming that that's the way that the world will continue. And while we can't predict the future because it hasn't happened yet, we can be really smart about looking at what's changing around us today and looking at a world through, through a different lens, uh, through an idea of what could happen, what are the whole range of possibilities to really prepare ourselves for to be flexible, right? To be flexible mm -hmm. in the face of, of change. And how, how do you, so are you, are you a futurist then? Is that how we can call you? You know, I've worked at IFTF for 12 years now and mm -hmm. I still don't feel comfortable calling myself a futurist, <laughs> but yeah, I guess other people might call me that. And um, can you tell us how, how, how can we become a futurist? So what is your background? Well, my background, I actually used to run youth leadership programs in Latin America for many years. And so that's sort of my background. I was running a lot of volunteer programs. And when I arrived at Institute for the Future, it was this moment in time when we had been doing a lot of pretty private work, you know, working mostly just with organizations. And IFTF really wanted to turn this corner and say, no, we're more of a public facing institution. We're engaging with communities out there. And it's been really an incredible journey to be on. But I think when I was brought on, it was part of that shift to be more community engagement. And then in 2013, 14, uh, I worked to put together our first sort of public engagement offering being that uh, we have Foresight Essentials, IFTF Foresight Essentials, which is where people can come and learn the tools and the methodologies and really the mindset of foresight. How do you really get yourself into this mindset of thinking more strategically about the longer term future? What fascinates you about the future? Well, the great thing is that it hasn't happened yet. Uh, and so that 
fascinates me in a lot of ways. Uh, I think what fascinates me about the future is there's so much possibility. And what excites me about getting people to think about the future is we don't often think about within like realistic bounds of understanding what's changing around us today. You know, what is it that we want? What is it that we want to strive for? Not what is it that we're against, but what is it that we want to put a stake in the ground and say, this is what we'd love to drive towards and and build. And so that's what excites me about the future. There's so much possibility It's also a space where people can come together and find similarity, even if we have sort of headbutting issues today. When you go five, 10 years out, we can find those points of commonality. What is it that we all want to strive towards? And we can start moving towards that possibility, that that future. And so, yeah, it's sort of this magical space where we can live out and see our dreams, find these connections with other people. And while we can't predict the future, while we can't preordain what will happen or say, this is exactly what I want and it will come out that way, we can really be more conscious about the decisions we make today. Um, could you talk a little bit, you talked about the, the mindset. People have to have this mindset to be ready for the future. Could you elaborate a little bit on this? Like what, what type of mindset is that? Yeah, I think that oftentimes we'll say, okay, I just take like X, Y, and Z tool or like a management tool or something, you know, put those together and then all of a sudden we get the future and this is our formula. And a lot of it, and because what I do is I'm the lead facilitator for IFTF Foresight Essentials. So I do a lot of engaging people in thinking about the future. And it's really about switching this flip in your head or flipping a switch. There you go. Not a flip. (laughs) Uh, Flipping the switch in your head and asking yourself, it's a question. It's about questioning things. I think that is this really, do, do things have to be this way? Giving yourself that space and possibility to say, what else is happening out there that shows that maybe the world could be radically different and then pushing yourself to, to consider and to find those ways to arrive at this radically different future. And so I think it's really this, the mindset is of opening yourself up. It's about constantly questioning and saying what else could be. And it's about using and exercising this sort of imagination muscle to try to think about, it's not just this one world that we see today. It's not just this one path of possibility, but how can we start to think about things that haven't even existed uh, yet before? And that's something that you definitely need to practice and build up. The imagination muscle? Is it a muscle? Yes. (laughs) You can train it? Yes, you can. I have been, um, believe me, my imagination muscle has gotten a lot stronger uh, since I've been at IFTF. Uh, And really it's the practice of pushing yourself, we have, I have a phenomenal colleague, Jane McGonigal, and she has written many books and TED Talks, and she has a community right now that we run called Urgent Optimists. And it's about thinking about how can we think about and get to these, you know, possible futures. And she wrote this book, Imaginable. Like, it's really about how do we do these exercises? And some of the exercises that she does, it's about getting yourself really deeply 
into understanding yourself in today and what you might be packing your bags with and bringing to whatever future. You engage with different scenarios of different possibilities. Uh, and you say, if this were to happen, you know, what would my personal role be there? If I, you know, a skill that I bring is I love to work with kids. Great. How can I bring that love of working with kids to a world where maybe there's increased, you know, climate disasters? Okay thinking about how do I bring that into this new type of world? Well, maybe I can work with young kids to cope with their feelings or to provide parents with, you know, some respite when they are overwhelmed and need a place for their children to go to. So making it imaginable by making it tangible, by putting yourself into that story. Do you believe this is a skill that is enough taught that schools, for example, today, <laughs> is it something that we should strengthen? Uh I think that, I mean, kids inherently have it, right? And then it's just bit by bit, it starts eroding <laughs> a little bit. This imagination Why is that? <laughs> and oftentimes because of our schools or because of, you know, we're trying to fit into this particular mindset. We're trying to fit in. And then eventually I think that we just aren't practicing this imagination skill. And it's not something that we as a society, I think, have valued quite enough and, and really celebrated enough in, in our children and in our adults. <laughs> Couldn't you say that the, the more, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just making a hypothesis right now. Yeah. So the more you get experience, the more you see like pattern emerging. And then at some point you sort of kind of always go to the most probable future instead of forcing yourself to open for new possibilities? Um, I think you definitely start to see patterns when you are keeping your eyes peeled open uh, for the future. What we're often looking for as futurists is what we call signals of change. Uh, so signals of change being these sort of unexpected examples of the future already happening today in the present. And so there is a quote by the science fiction author, William Gibson. He says, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. So I know it's a quote that's used a lot, but I think it's really helpful in demonstrating that nothing is coming out of thin air, right? You're nothing new, you know, this generative AI, it's not like it just popped up. You know, uh, virtual reality, not like it just popped up. There's been somebody working in a lab for years who has been trying and failing. We're seeing communities using different types of ways of communicating with each other uh, that maybe haven't caught on in other areas. And so as futurists, we're constantly looking out for these bits and pieces of the future that might exist in one place that looks weird. It's different from how the world normally functions. It's a different type of law. It's a different way of interacting. Uh, it's a different startup or a product. And sort of asking ourselves, first of all, why are we intrigued? You know, like what is different about this? If this became the norm, how might the future look different? And then constantly sort of keeping our eyes peeled and asking those conversations, what, what would be different about this world? And so to get back to your question about the patterns and, and uh, you know, uh, you know, probable futures, eventually, as you're keeping your eyes peeled, and you're really scanning the environment constantly for signals, you will start to see patterns. But I think the, 
the whole point of that futurist mindset is to not say, oh, I'm seeing all these patterns. That means it's absolutely going to happen. Uh, it's about asking, okay, what else is happening? Is there a counter trend that's happening out there? What, what else? Because there's constantly, you know, the world isn't simple. It's not just this one line. Many different futures will exist and presence exist at the same time, right? When you, when you said that the, the futures are um, unevenly distributed, um, so the Institute of the Future, uh, such as Sweetsnacks in San Francisco, we're both based in the Bay. Mm -hmm. um, I would have the, the tendency to say that the future is a little bit more in San Francisco than elsewhere in the world. Is that, is that a, a, you know, a hypothesis you would share? Um, I think there are a lot of imaginers and dreamers and creators in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, Bob Johansson, who's a distinguished fellow at Institute for the Future and our former president back in the day, uh, he sort of talks about how he thinks that Silicon Valley has this and, you know, the Bay Area has this magic because, you know, we're maybe, maybe it's because we're on a fault line, you know, for uh, an earthquake, you know, we never know. There's this precarity of the moment. We need to live on the edge. So, yeah, I think there are a lot of people who are thinking about the future, who are trying to create the future in the Bay Area. But what's so important, and this is why, you know, IFTF, yes, we have an office in Palo Alto, but we have a really huge network of research affiliates around the world because it's not just going to all be in any one place, right? The future is all over the world. It's happening all around us. And so I think, yes, we can look at our world around us and see, you know, all of the new experiments and ups and downs of autonomous vehicles, for example, that's playing out in San Francisco. We can see that here. But, you know, there's plenty of other places and other things and communities, be it in urban spaces or rural spaces, all over really the globe that we want to be opening our minds to. Could you give us, I mean, if not, if not in the Bay Area, um, where else should we have a look at the future? Hmm. So I did a project in, oh, it's a good question, 2017, I think, uh, maybe 2018, And what we were doing is we were looking at the future specifically for uh, young people and what are the skills that young people will need to thrive in the future. Uh, and so we sent folks out and we did ethnographic interviews and we were sort of looking at people who were living the future first and, and really on the edges. Uh, and so we sent research teams and worked with teams on the ground, obviously, uh, to engage with cities around the world. So I did interviews in Berlin uh, and Mexico City. We also had uh, teams in Lagos, Nigeria. Um, I think it was Chongqing, China. Uh, we were just looking at all of these different spaces, trying to understand and yes, a lot of them were cities, right? Uh, trying to see these places, these this nexus of all of these different ideas coming together. Um, and in terms of places, I know it's not necessarily uh, a place in terms of uh, people, but or geography, but artists, 
if you're looking for the future, find artists. They are the ones that are constantly finding, you know, the edges, our assumptions, you know, about the world and sort of tweaking them and poking at them uh, and and trying to to call out to us, you know, what is different or what could be different in the world. So I think artists are one of my favorite places to look for for the future. What are the the things that they're really pulling out? Why why is that? Why do you think that they have this capability? Um I mean, yeah, they they're the ones that are questioning the world, right? Uh, oftentimes they're looking at it through a different lens than the rest of us who might not identify as artists. Um, there's one artist who I actually haven't even checked up on what she's been doing in a long time, uh, Lauren McCarthy. And, you know, she did these incredible things. She sort of was a technologist and an artist Uh, in Southern California and was looking at things like uh, how we engage with each other, how we interact with each other and created sort of this overlay on top of Google uh, plus or Google meet to, you know, record and capture, you know, how long is each person speaking in a conversation? Uh, if a person's, it was doing sort of word analysis and, uh, you know, as well, and saying, you know, if somebody's using more aggressive words or not, it's sort of giving you this feedback in real time and just constantly pushing you to, to ask questions about what you're doing, what we're doing. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, it's an interesting quote. And this is, I mean, the, I think the, what, what you were explaining, bringing artists to the conversation, something that also we like to do at Swiss Next, bringing, um, artist or designer or um, in this metropolis project we had architect um, yes. uh, talking with scientists and with uh, founders um, probably bringing this different perspective uh, and maybe to go a bit more I mean you you gave us the example of the interviews that you did that were, the, were in cities and <laughs> and yes metropolis as, as, as the name says is about cities um, so I was wondering if you could tell us Uh, um, maybe out of this uh, workshop or maybe just generally speaking, what is your uh, take on the future of cities? Um, what are the, maybe the signals that you've been seeing? Uh, how, how will the, the cities of the, of the future look like? Yeah. And, you know, I think cities are this, I don't know. I've always lived, uh, mostly lived in cities. I've actually lived in some pretty rural areas as well. And I think they're just these magical places where so many different walks of life come together. And as you were saying, so I think you as Switznecks and what we do at Institute for the Future, it's constantly about finding people with different perspectives right? And bringing them like really meaningful, interesting perspectives on their own, but bringing them together in conversation. And I think that's really what a city is. We don't necessarily have these spaces. And I think a lot about city and a lot about cities. And, you know, you do this with the architects that you're speaking with as well. And I know people that you had in for this, you know, your anniversary, uh, we're thinking about this. And, 
really about how do we create the spaces for this type of interaction and break down the human barriers so we have the space for people to really build up on top of each other. I know that during COVID, during the pandemic, we have a lot of people turning inside, right? Uh, Staying in, not going out to do as much as they maybe would have otherwise. And I think the future for cities is really about creating these spaces, and it could be through art, right, Um, that bring people out of their shells and into a collective conversation together. I think cities are going to be challenged, especially coastal cities, uh, as we see, you know, continual battering of climate chaos um, on our cities. And I think it'll be even more of an imperative than before that we know how to work together to support each other, to lift each other up, um, and to have that social safety net and social infrastructure, not even necessarily governmental, but the social infrastructure to be able to, you know, come together and, and rise up. I know that's something that in my time working in Mexico City as well, not just for that project, but seeing in the aftermath of the earthquake that happened now, I don't know, maybe it was six, seven years ago, um, you know, of people just really, it wasn't even the government necessarily that was getting people together. It was all of this ad hoc people supporting each other and figuring out what was needed, activating to go and get there and bring those resources together. And I think we have more and more tools that will allow us to make those connections uh, in interesting ways in the future. So the future will be more social? I think it needs to be more social. (laughs) You know, a lot of times we're bringing our our hopes and our dreams into these conversations. But I think that in order for us to thrive as cities, we need to break down the barriers between us. We need to sort of go outside. And I know that sometimes cities can feel even less connected, maybe in a way, socially than it you do in maybe a suburban or rural area where you need to know your neighbors. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. There is this paradox because in cities, sometimes we have the feeling that's even more anonymous. People don't even, you know, know less each other. Yeah. um, And I think that's absolutely right. And I'm hoping that we as a society and as communities, I mean, I think we're seeing in our businesses, you know, rising uh, and sort of this rise in the worker movement that we've been seeing in the United States, you know, this this growing belief and, you know, we need to be there to, to support each other. Let's think about different worker cooperatives. Let's think about different ways that we can come together. And I'm hoping that that, you know, can really extend beyond and go into, and we have just such deep analytics as well now uh, able to see these layers on top of our cities about the interconnections that we have, the, you know, um, social fabric. We're able to sort of visualize that in a way that we haven't before. And do you think that for this coming together uh, is, uh, I I was just thinking since we are, you know, in the Silicon Valley, uh, but is the role of technology enabler or is it rather something that isolates people from each other? So, you really just hit uh, the nail on the head there uh, with one of the exercises that we do in 
Foresight Essentials, when we're teaching how to think about the future, is really about how do we understand the perspective that we bring to the future. Uh, It's called, we do an exercise called Orient to the Future, uh, and it's where we literally have people stand up if you're in person, and you can also do this in like a Zoom poll, but uh, stand up and place yourself on a line along a spectrum responding to a question, thinking about like, I think, you know, 10 years from now, uh, we're you know, the world will be a better place or the world will be a worse place. And you place yourself along that spectrum. And one one of the questions that we always ask is, uh, I think technology is bringing us closer together or pushing us further apart. So you just named those two poles on that spectrum. And we have people line up because all of those answers are equally valid, right? Um, everybody, and it's about hearing from different people in the room. It's about when you're thinking about the future, getting together folks that have this whole range of perspectives uh, that can then contribute to the conversation. I think that technology has been, has been, I would say a little bit more on the pushing us further apart, but it's, it's a pull, you know, it's like we're closer Mm -hmm. to people who are further from us. We're able to have these online classes where we have people from, Malawi and Singapore and, you know, Chile all in the same class, but then, you know, our connections with the people that we are physically close to um, can also be on the decline because of that. What, what do the majority of the people say? I'm curious. Do they, I mean, what you've been saying, is it like more bringing us together or more, you know, drawing us apart? I think probably a little more towards driving us apart, but we okay. have those, you need to have the optimists in the room as well, uh-huh. uh, no matter what, you know, to be pulling you and to be representing really genuinely that side of the conversation, which is equally as valid as maybe, you know, there are things we need to watch out for, but, you know, at the same time, you know, it could be teaching, uh, you know, kids, um, I have an autistic nephew. I'm thinking about, you know, the ability for technology to help probably with him learning mm-hmm. social skills um, and really practicing those things in maybe safer environments uh, before he goes out into the quote unquote real world. So there's a lot of so much possibility there. There is um, one thing you've been uh, roughing it uh, right now. I mean, getting together, you know having a common picture of the future, like one thing you've been referring to. And I was, I was just thinking, um, you know, in terms of your clients, of course, I can imagine a lot of um, corporates want to think about the strategy or, um, you know, institutions like Swiss Next like to think about the future. Um, But then I was also thinking, why do you have politicians sometimes? Just because I was thinking, basically bringing people together behind the common mm-hmm. vision of the future, uh, that's what politics is about. That's what our society should be about. Yeah. So I have this phenomenal colleague, Jake Dunnigan, and he runs our Governance Futures Lab. Uh, and so he's been thinking about the future of governance in in many different ways. And this is, we're now, I think, 11 years out from when he ran uh, the reconstitutional convention, thinking about like, how do we think about our constitutions and how we govern our societies differently. But he's also done a lot of work with the U.S. Conference of Mayors, uh, really thinking about 
mayors. And, you know, this is once again, going back to the idea of cities, right? We maybe have these huge states or a nation is just this potentially an unwieldy size. Mm -hmm. And we have an, uh, we don't have a great ability to bring people together and unite around how do we make this change and actually executing on change. And so he's worked with the U.S. Conference of Mayors and looking at uh, mayors really across the U.S. to how do you develop a vision for the future of your city? How do you bring foresight into what you're doing to not just be saying, I have this, you know, grandiose Mm -hmm. vision for the city and it's not based on, you know, this real grounding and the fact that we have maybe an aging population or maybe we have, you know, a growing student population with student loan debt. So trying to understand the things that are changing around them and then really harnessing that to develop and execute and drive towards a vision for the future. Mm -hmm. I guess that's one of the biggest challenges that well, they face, the mayor faces, um, as well as uh, probably many cities is, you were, were talking about it, is, is climate change. Um, is, that a, is, that, is that a common uh, signal that you see in your workshop? And how, how do you see the future of cities under this lens of, of climate change? Yeah, so I think that absolutely, you know, we've gone through waves at Institute for the Future, you know, like really calling it out and say like climate change, we need to talk about this. And now we're at this point where, uh, and then there are times where like, it's unspoken, you need to like, of course, this is just embedded. And we're at this point where every, what we say is that any forecast, so any statement or, uh, you know, narrative about a possible future, and these forecasts should always be based on facts from today. So signals of change from today and what we call drivers of change, these big underlying sort of mega trends, mega forces that will shift uh, the nature of the future. Uh, No matter what, when we're talking about these forecasts, these statements about the future, they need to take into account climate change. And if they don't, they're just not valid. You know, you just need to throw them out. If we're not actively integrating it into a conversation that we're having, it's not a realistic vision of the future. You're just sort of blocking out, you know, what is actually happening. Uh, So what does it mean for the future of cities? I mean, it's one of these things that's really, it can, some of it baffles me, right? Looking at the city of Miami, which in theory saying, you know, like there is sea level rise coming. They are increasingly seeing flooding. It is not to me. I'm like, this doesn't seem viable in the long term, yet they're seeing more and more people move there. So sometimes, you know, the future is not, you know, exactly as we uh, thought it would be. I think that we'll increasingly see uh division in our cities and sort of inequality based around geography, uh, geographies that are more susceptible to uh, climate chaos or impact. We're going to see people move out of it who have the money to do so, moving to literally higher ground or sort of more fortified areas and seeing, you know, folks with lower incomes basically be in areas that are hit again and again and again. And I mean, I think this is something that we've seen already, we'll continue to see that those with the least resources are going to be Mm -hmm. the ones the most impacted by it. Uh, I think so it's up to us to be aware of that, to be preventative about that. But I'm, I'm, 
I'm very, I'm concerned. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. a little scared about what do our cities look like when we literally have our divide like that in sort of lower and higher ground or just, you know, the ability to bounce back. Or if you're a renter, uh, you know, having less recourse and ability to to bounce back uh, mm-hmm. in case of, you know, climate emergency, but then also thinking about things like, you know, rising heat indexes um, and seeing folks who are not able to gain access to air conditioning, etc. So I think there's going to be more going to be need to be more things like, you know, cooling centers. And we're going to have to in California, we're already dealing with sort of rolling blackouts, which is something that other, you know, uh, areas of the world experience on a daily basis. So trying to think about how do we start to adjust our lives around that. Mm-hmm. Would you, um, maybe uh, uh, as a, one of the last questions, yeah. um, are you optimistic about the future? Because this was quite a dystopian picture of our future, <laughs> what our future would look like. So, uh, You know, somewhat, yes. <laughs> I think I need, to, <laughs> I need to be. And, you know, you can't just, it's easier I think some people, it tends to be easier to be optimistic and I push them to think about, you know, whichever way you tend towards, I push you to in courses or whatever, to think the opposite, you know, like what is, you know, if you think it's going to be all sunshine and rainbows, what could mess that up, right? You know, what could possibly go wrong or how, what would happen in this future scenario that would make you scared or angry, even if you think it's the best future in the whole world? Uh, so I think I tend a little bit towards the slightly pessimist, but I have amazing colleagues and this foresight mindset that pushes me to see the optimistic side of things. And I think if we Mm -hmm. don't have that optimism, if we're not developing these, that, you know, urgent optimism as our group, our, um, community is called urgent optimists, you know, that there's no, mm-hmm. there is no future if we don't have optimism. I'm, I'm excited for the future. I'm excited for us. And I think the more people have the foresight mindset and the foresight skill set, the more they're able to see that, you know, we're not just victims mm-hmm. of the future. We every day have choices that we need to make and we can make these choices towards building out that better future that we want to see. Um. Talking about uh, choices or exercises, um, I was wondering if you could uh, give us, you know, an exercise to train our, uh, um, I would call, uh, imagination muscles every day so that uh, our our listeners can then be uh, more uh, imaginative about, you know, the future and a little bit more creative. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so one that, again, my amazing colleague, Jane McGonigal, uh, has done is called First Five Minutes of the Future. Mm-hmm. And so what she'll do, and I would highly recommend generally her book, Imaginable, is just, it's really fabulous. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a great read physically. You can also listen to it. Uh, and what she asks people to do is you're sort of put into a future scenario, a future 
world. And so let's say one of the ones that she does is basically you wake up and there's no internet, uh, no, you know, cell phone, no, like basically all of our connectivity has gone out like mm-hmm. entirely. And you find out, you go outside, you find out that like it's all around. And what you want to do is think about what are what would you do so vividly, get really vivid about what you would do in the first five minutes after waking up and realizing this, you know, or whatever future it is that you're in. And we want you to get, you know, like, where are you? What, who are you? Are you going to call somebody? Are you going to, you know, first you're like picking up your phone and you're trying various things. I know at one point I was thinking during the pandemic, I was like, oh, you know, Uh, When I first did this, I was like, I'd probably like go out onto, you know, the street and start like knocking on my neighbor's doors and being like, hey, is this happening to you too? Uh, Mm -hmm. Who are the people that you talk to? What would you do? What are the feelings that would be going through your head? And just get as granular as possible and just Mm -hmm. free write for, you know, a good five minutes thinking about what you would do. Okay, so I think we all have an exercise to do for <laughs> for the next days. I'm I'm excited about hearing uh, about maybe comments of what people would do. Uh, we'll put the reference of the book in the in the show notes for our listeners. Yeah, and we're about to, uh, just to sorry, say, um, why would you do that, <laughs> um, and why does this matter? Uh, you know, thinking about the future in those first five minutes of the future, it's helping make this pretty abstract world a little bit closer. It helps you to engage and really see yourself in the future. And by making it more vivid, you start to care more about it and you really start to put together new plans and and make your mind more flexible to think about different possibilities. Mm -hmm. And I think you also train for um, real life situation because when you were saying that I was I was in New York City during Sandy back then mm-hmm. and we literally woke up and there was no cell phone connectivity nothing and we definitely had those five minutes and the yes. first thing we did was yeah I think was this actually but I, I don't want to give too many uh, tips to people who are going to do the exercise <laughs> they need to think it for themselves <laughs> Well, thank you very much, um, Sarah, for your time and for your insight into uh, the future. It was very inspiring and enriching for uh, for me to have like this professional perspective on how <laughs> we can think about the future. Um, I wish you a wonderful day, whatever the, the your your future day will look like. <laughs> thank you very much for your insight and um, talk soon. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun to talk to you. Thank you so much, Sarah. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. This episode was part of the Metropolis season, where we celebrate Swiss Next in San Francisco's 20th anniversary. Find out more about the anniversary and upcoming events by Swissnex in San Francisco in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode and see you at one of our upcoming events.